0: Dan, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate you taking the time to have a conversation with me. Would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself before we get started?
1: Sure. Thanks for having me. I have a YouTube channel and I'm on social media and I promote Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism. If you want to find my channel, you can go to youtube.com slash Dan Norton one.
0: Cool. Uh, could you tell me more about objectivism? Why do you think this is a successful ideology and we should adopt it?
1: Sure. So Ayn Rand developed the philosophy. Called She called it objectivism. She was a 20th century philosopher. She lived from 1905 to 1982, immigrated from Russia to the U.S. She's most famous for writing her novels, The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged. Uh, she also wrote a bunch of nonfiction on all branches of philosophy, epistemology, ethics, politics. So I can give you a very brief, uh, standing on one foot version of the philosophy. She was actually asked to do this one. Someone asked her, "Could you describe your philosophy while standing on one foot?" And she did that. So the quick one, standing on one foot version, is uh, in metaphysics. She believes in objective reality there's only one re- one world no supernatural realm no god so she's an atheist in epistemology she believes in reason as the only means to knowledge reason based on the evidence of the senses so she doesn't believe in faith or mysticism in ethics she believes in rational self-interests so individuals should should pursue their own lives their own happiness their own well-being Uh, through the use of their rational capacities, and they shouldn't sacrifice others to themselves. They they should neither sacrifice themselves to others, they shouldn't be altruists, uh, or sacrifice uh, others to themselves. So they shouldn't be the kind of uh, what you might call a brute egoism, which in the final analysis, you would say is not really egoism. It's not really to your interest to sacrifice others to your it's, it's better to for yourself to respect other right, others' rights and live in harmony with them. And then politically, she's in favor of laissez-faire capitalism. Uh, so the, the, there should be a government, she's opposed to anarchy, but it should have a very limited, limited role. It should be restricted to protecting individual rights, which means protecting people from the initiation of physical force. That's the only proper function of the government, which more concretely means there should be a police force to protect people from domestic criminals. There should be a military to protect people from foreign invaders. And then there should be a court system to peacefully settle disputes among people. But there shouldn't be a. Social safety net. There shouldn't be a government welfare program, Rel- wealth wealth redistri- redistribution schemes where you use force to transfer money from some people to others. So there's no social security, there's no Medicare, there's no public education, there's no public roads. Uh, so she she thinks there should be massively more restricted uh, government than we have today in the United States, and that's the ideal social system. She also has some views about art aesthetics. But those are the uh, main branches she mentions in her article. It's called Introducing Objectivism, where she gives this one-foot presentation. Uh, so that's, that's a nutshell summary of the philosophy.
0: So a few things there. One is, um, how do you have a military? Like, is there taxes? Like, do you have taxes?
1: No, there are no taxes. If that means coercively uh, acquired funds, everything is funded by voluntary means, there's no coercion. So there are various ways you could finance the uh, few functions of government that there should be. She has an article called Government Financing in a Free Society in her book, The Virtue of Selfishness, where she talks about various ways to finance the government. I also have a a video on my YouTube channel where I address this question. There could be lotteries, that's one way. Historically, governments actually have used lotteries in some cases to fund their functions. Donations, of course. Uh, she talks about uh, uh, paying money to enforce contracts. That's an idea she discusses in this essay I mentioned. So there are various, various different ways it can be done. But no coercion. And it would be much easier to finance the functions of government because there would be so much less government to finance.
0: Well, sure. But there seems to be a few problems there. One is that if we look at uh, governments around the world, it seems most governments have taxes and taxes produce a significant amount of money and if we use the methods you propose it seems like we would have a much smaller amount of money and so we'd have much smaller military by extension and so if a larger country like china or russia who does forcibly tax their nation wants to use their much larger military to conquer us there seems like there's very little we could do to stop them in that case
1: there's a i I don't know that we want to um start midstream, you might say, and talking about today's situation, things would have evolved so radically differently if from the beginning uh, of this country, we had a voluntary system. I think if we have the right foreign policy, there's much less need for military spending. I think we have a very weak, a far too weak foreign policy uh, today. We let other, other nations get away with things that we shouldn't. And if we had a strong moral backbone, I think, um, and, and we show we weren't a paper tiger. We were willing to back up our, or defend our own rights uh, with force, devastating force. Uh, like for instance, dropping the uh, nuclear bomb in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. If we had that, more of that sort of attitude, I think far fewer people would be willing to take a risk on ruffling our feathers. And there would be it would be very easy to defend ourselves. I could say more about that, but there's, there's more, those are a few initial thoughts on that.
0: Well, I mean, just in general, it seems like uh, countries are not all good. They're not all moral. There are lots of bad people who run countries and they want to conquer. That's most of human history is uh, military conquerings of other countries. And given your system, it doesn't seem like it provides enough strength to the military force to be able to stop that. Uh, so that seems like a problem in general that if we adopt your system – uh, we don't have a means to stop other large military powers who use the forcible taxation method to gain significantly larger militaries.
1: Um, okay, so yeah, I can address that. But first, I'm just I'm curious of um, if there's any kind of agenda uh, you have for what you want to talk about today. We I emailed a bit with with someone on your on your team there about what we were going to talk about, and I think we had discussed. Um, egoism or selfishness is one thing. We, we don't have to sure. stick to that, but I'm just curious to, to get, get an idea of overall, like if there's any certain topics that you in particular wanted to cover in this discussion.
0: Mostly just an open conversation. So I was just going to pick up on whatever you brought in into the conversation pretty much. So yeah, if you want to talk about egoism or selfishness, that's fine too. Sure.
1: Okay. Yeah. Maybe we can get to that a bit later, but um, okay. So I uh, getting back to your question. So you, I think the, uh, if it had a proper foreign policy, if it was defending its own interests um, in only doing that, it wasn't doing things like um, trying to spread democracy to the world or be the world's policeman, uh, If it was just restricting itself to protecting the rights of American citizens, and it did that in the right way, I don't think we would... Uh, be seriously threatened by any country around the world. I think this, for so many decades we've been failing to rigorously protect our interests and only protect our interests, that we've gotten ourselves into situations where things are more dicey today. And it is we are more threatened, like for things like 9-11 that happened. Uh, I don't think that would have happened if we had had a, foreign proper, a proper foreign policy for decades preceding, to, preceding that. I think there's been lots of appeasement of Middle Eastern countries, um, uh, the Iran hostage situation, for example. And if we had a a better response to these decades worth of historical events, we wouldn't have gotten ourselves into the situation that we're in right now.
0: Well, what do you mean? Like, what kind of foreign policy could prevent any other country from forming a military
1: well, they can form a military, but I don't think they're going to be able to develop, develop it to become as powerful as such that they could mount a serious challenge to the United States if we had a foreign policy. So I guess one thing that comes to mind here is like letting Arab countries seize the oil, nationalize the oil, and then develop a wealthy, you know, they, they can get a lot of wealth from that and then use that wealth to build up their military and then attack Or even, you know, giving weapons directly, giving weapons to, I think, the Afghanis back in the, uh, was it the 80s after when they were fighting with the USSR? And then eventually they turn around and can use those weapons against us. So I think if we just do the right things, then we're not going to, they're not going to be a threat to us if we don't appease them.
0: Well, I'm not following exactly because it seems like if america had no foreign policy whatsoever did nothing to help other countries it still seems like other countries would still be able to develop militaries comparable to america like russia china other big countries it doesn't seem like we could ever prevent other big countries from having big militaries comparable to our own
1: i think it, i think we could prevent that if it seemed like and there's no reason to if they seem like they're friendly like if it's if it's some western country like the uk and they, they're not a threat. If they use their their military in the interest of defending freedom, then they're not a threat to us. So it's, it's not a problem if a country like that develops a powerful military. But if if there's some other country, a, a dictatorship like Nazi Germany or Soviet Russia, uh, and, and we see a country could potentially become a threat if we, if we know by the nature of their ideology that they're hostile to free countries, then we have a reason to nip that in the bud and prevent them from becoming powerful. So I think we just wouldn't let it happen in cases of countries where they have a hostile to freedom.
0: Wouldn't let it happen by invading them or something?
1: It might depend. Maybe in some cases it would require an invasion. Maybe in other cases you can just attack them from afar. You could shoot missiles at them. But uh, in any case, I think it would be very very easy if, if we had a principled foreign policy and we just kept our eyes open and we remained, remained vigilant to any stirrings anywhere, um, any potential rise in, of a power, powerful uh, enemy, then we would just uh, want to nip that in the bud. I don't think it would be difficult to do.
0: To me, that seems like it'd be extremely difficult to do. I don't think we could... Possibly ever have enough military power to be able to stop all of the aggressive governments from forming a combative military. That seems hard. That seems like impossible to do. Like if anybody could do that, then that would be like world domination levels of control. Um, so like preventing China or Russia or Italy or any country since the course of World War One or World War Two ever building up a comparable military to the U.S. seems impossible. I don't think we could possibly do that, especially on a limited government like you're proposing. Like, In order to do that, maybe we could do it if we just taxed everyone and just did nothing but military. Maybe. But on a limited government with purely voluntary or lottery-based funding with a smaller budget than we have now, it seems like it'd be impossible to build a military powerful enough to be able to micromanage every single country who we thought was hostile.
1: Well, I don't think we need to micromanage every country. I just think we need to uh, prevent it from getting to a point where it could threaten our freedom. And I, I don't think that would be difficult. I mean, it's, as free citizens, we should value our own freedom and we should choose voluntarily to, to fund a freedom-respecting government and, if necessary, fight for it. And that's what happened in the American Revolution. You had people volunteering to fight against the British, in the name of freedom, give me liberty or give me death. So you know, if people are willing to risk their lives for the cause of freedom, then they should certainly be willing to do something much less costly, which is give up some of their money. Isn't that a self-interested thing to do to tie it, maybe tie it to the issue of self-interest? Uh, I think it is an egoistic, uh, selfish, in Ayn Rand's sense of that term, which is something we could talk about. It's different than the conventional sense of the term. Um, I think it is in, uh, our self-interest to support a government that will continue to protect our rights and prevent other countries from becoming too powerful to threaten them.
0: Um, Well, in a way, I think that's true, but I think that humans aren't smart, and so they don't do things in self-interest. Like, one of the things that would be in the best self-interest of humans would be to stop global warming so we don't kill millions of people. That would be in the best interest of humans. But we don't fund it, even though it's in our best interest. Same with science. It's in our best interest to fund science to just everything. Science should be the primary funding source of everything. And that would be the in the self-interest of humanity, but we don't do it because we're not, as human beings, we're not good at long-term thinking. We're very short-term thinking. And so it seems like it's beneficial to have a kind of organization that will invest in those long-term things, even if we aren't smart enough to do so. So the fact that it takes our money by force and then invests in those long-term things seems to be a benefit that would given a country an advantage Because it did this over one that just allowed for voluntary kinds of funding of things that people chose to fund
1: Okay, so I think um, A few things came up there. I'm taking some notes. That's why I'm looking down at things So I think it is in human beings interests to to be long-range. We don't survive just moment to moments now, this doesn't mean that automatically we behave in a long range sort of way, but I think it's a choice. It's open to us to consider the long run consequences of our actions or to just uh, yield to the whim of the moment and not think things through, not think through what will be the results on your own life and well being. But that's part of the challenge of being a human being is to choose to think about the long-run consequences and act accordingly. I, I don't think that forcing people is a good long-run policy. I think coercion, I think freedom is what leads to prosperity. Um, if, you, if you institute a policy of coercion, that, I think that shuts down people's minds, which, which makes it uh, harder for them to produce wealth or want to produce wealth, which wealth they could use to defend themselves. So, uh, taxation, for instance, this is a, it's a use of coercion to take away people's wealth. So, you know, why should I work if my, if the fruits of my labor are just going to be going to somebody else, I lose motivation. So, um, if you, if you want people to be productive in society, I think it behooves you to, to leave them free to reap the rewards of their wealth. And that's,
0: I think. Oh, I think you lost connection.
1: Hey. Okay. Now now I hear you again. Cool. Sorry about that. My phone overheated and it shut down. No problem. So uh, where were we? Or where do you want to start?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So my question uh, was that. It seems like other countries, if they're allowed to use taxation as a method to gain military power, and we're not allowed to use taxation, our military is going to be weaker uh, necessarily. And the only way we can prevent that, for example, is if we start with a bigger military and we just prevent everyone else from ever using taxation to build a military. Um, And so it seems like this method of taxation gives gives your country an advantage. It allows it to build stuff faster, whether it's a military science, whatever. And so, uh, if your system requires that we have already have a massive advantage and then prevent any other country from being able to utilize taxation to their benefit, that seems like micromanaging. It seems like it's literally impossible to do that.
1: Okay. I mean, it's the, uh, I don't know if the, um, we can really project here uh, under this kind of alternative reality to say how things would have gone. I mean, if we go back to what, like 1776 uh, when the country was just breaking away from the British and we imagined from that point that we had a system of voluntary uh, funding of the governments, I think we would be uh, way ahead of where we are today far more stronger far more powerful and also the 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 uh if we had a good foreign policy for those 240 or however many years um all that all that time i think the other the threatening countries in the world today like china or russia or north korea would be much less powerful so i think that history would just be radically different if we imagine that we had a good foreign policy and a good domestic policy, which I would say is uh, in- includes, among other things, not coercing our own citizens, we would just be so much stronger than we are today that the kind of threat that you're worried about, I don't think it would actually um, be upon us. And we could talk about more why that might be, but that's my view of what the alternative would would be to.
0: Yeah, so my initial thought is that if... Uh, a system like yours it would lead to a more successful outcome than what we see today. Why is it that we never see any of the top countries using that system? It seems like if your system was, would have led to a better outcome, then any country who had adopted it in the past would be far better off today. And it seems like that isn't the case. It seems like most of the lead countries are taxation countries.
1: Okay. Um, so I think this is where the issue of morality might become more relevant. I think it's that uh, we have the wrong morality. I think many people are uh, have uh, accepted this morality of altruism or self-sacrifice, at least to some degree, where they think it's, it's not best to pursue your own interest. And then as a result of that, there are programs like welfare so you shouldn't be selfish and keep all your money for yourself you should help out the poor or help out the old help out the sick we have all these programs uh, which are premised on the wrong morality I think you are your brother's keeper this kind of biblical Judeo-Christian idea where it's your duty your moral duty to sacrifice And, hey, if it is your duty to sacrifice, if self-sacrifice is a moral thing to do, then, you know, we should do things that make ourselves worse off. We should love our enemies, for instance. And we should allow aggriter nations to uh, run run roughshod over us. Don't stand up for yourself and be uh, proud. You know, pride is a sin. Be humble, be meek. Um, So I think it's because... uh, Countries in the world have for far too long accepted this altruistic sort of morality and put themselves in a position of weakness and susceptibility to being taken over and threatened by aggressor regimes.
0: Two things so there. One is that what really
1: we need is a moral revolution. Two,
0: two things there. First, one is that if Studying biology and evolution, it seems uh, altruism is a benefit. It benefits uh, many species uh, for things to be altruistically giving towards other species because there are many examples of more selfish species that don't help one another and they don't do as successful. Uh, and so it seems like this altruism that we have is actually extremely beneficial, which is why things like healthcare and uh, social security, welfare, all those things seem to benefit countries, not harm them in the way that you're proposing. But secondly, my, my original question was more specifically if your system is better, why don't we see more countries who used your system become the most powerful countries in the world? Why is it the countries that have the healthcare that become the most powerful countries in the world? It seems like if your system actually worked, then countries who had adopted something similar to your system would be the ones that are the most powerful, most technologically advanced, most everything. But that seems to not be the case.
1: So why haven't countries adopted this at its best? So what I was trying to say is I think at least part of the reason countries haven't adopted it, is they don't understand the morality that's necessary to undergird this kind of political system. Ayn Rand developed the revolutionary morality, which is new to the world. And I think as long as people don't understand or are even aware of that morality, they're not going to act in accordance with it. So I think part of the way to uh, get the kind of political system that I advocate, a prerequisite to that is convincing people of the moral system that Ayn Rand uh, advocates, a system of rational egoism, and that's absent right now. So I think that's a big part of the explanation as to why the sort of system that I, following Rand's support politically, hasn't yet uh, come to fruition. But I think the systems that have gotten closest to it have done the best. So I think historically, America has done phenomenally well. And I don't think it's a coincidence that America is also the closest historically to any country, of any country, uh, to a sort of system that uh, Rand advocates. Or you compare things like North Korea and South Korea, or East Germany and West Germany, the Soviet bloc and the West bloc. Wherever, to the degree that a country accepts freedom, I think it does better. And to the degree that it abandons freedom in favor of coercion, I think it does worse. And I think we can extrapolate from that that the more free a country is, the better it does. And I'm advocating for the extreme of freedom, which means no violations of rights, no physical force at all, except in retaliation. Uh, And so I think we have historical and philosophical reason to think that that system would work great.
0: Well, we have a lot of examples in history of governments who don't have healthcare welfare, those kinds of things. They don't have taxes in the same way we do. There's lots of examples of countries that seem more similar to the model that you're proposing than what we have today, but they seem to be less successful. It seems like the reason we adopted healthcare is because it's successful. It benefits the countries. It has a huge positive impact over countries that don't have that. So it I don't see the connection that you're making between freedom and growth. It seems like it's the opposite of the case. When the government takes money and funds public programs, that causes a significant amount of growth. But taking those away seems to deteriorate growth.
1: Okay, yeah. So I I, I just don't agree with that assessment of the history. I think uh, there was explosive growth in the late 19th century in the United States, which I think was... Uh, plausibly the freest period uh, in in the world's history. And you uh, had millions of immigrants coming to country at that time. And I think we're far behind where we would be if we had stuck to uh, that model of freedom. So I, I think, uh, yeah, so I just have a different read on where we, we would be right now if we had the sort of freedom I advocate. I don't think com- countries adopted it You know, welfare uh, sorts of schemes because it's successful, I think plausibly is due to moral and philosophical reasons. Uh, German philosophy uh, became very dominant in the 19th century following Kant and Hegel, Uh, and they were arch collectivists, uh, self sacrificers. You're just a cell within the body of the state. I think that was Hegel's view. You can be sacrificed to the state. And this led to ideologies like Nazism, um, you know, which is horrible. So I think the horrors of the 20th century, you can attribute that to following an anti-individualistic, anti-egoistic, anti-freedom sort of philosophy. And we would have been much better off had we from the beginning stuck to this sort of free pursuit of happiness uh, morality that Rand advocates. In the, the 19th fathers also advocated implicitly, at least.
0: In the 1920s, I thought the like marginal tax rate was like 70% for rich people. It was like a massive tax rate.
1: In the 1920s? Yeah. Oh, I was mentioning the 19th century, so the 1800s, late 1800s, when I think there was little or no taxation. There was not even an income tax amendment until I think it was 1913 or 16, 1913, I think.
0: So you're just in like th- the Wild the West thing, kind of kind of area? What's that? Like the Wild West kind of an area where just farmers yeah. – There's well, definitely I mean, a lot of you, growth you had,
1: was, The country was expanding to the West. I mean, you had uh, cities in the East and, you know, throughout the 19th century, they, uh, you know, expanded westward.
0: Yes, but like I, I think like the biggest growth period in humanity was after like – World War one World War two in the 1920s the roaring 20s or whatever I thought that was the biggest growth period during American history when we had massive tax rates uh, Lots of social spending and things going on that that from my knowledge was the fastest growing part of the history of America Uh,
1: I don't I don't know about that. I mean the um, the late 19th century there was tons of inventions Uh, you had the car you had electricity I mean, the, everything we have today uh, that runs on electricity, that's thanks to discoveries in the 19th century. Um, I think it's, its uh, there was the airplane, early 20th century. Um, I mean, I, I think we should have flying cars by now. Uh, it's, um, it's, I think it's too bad we don't, but I think uh, we likely would, uh, at least more likely would, if we had uh, the freedom that we had uh, hundred years ago or more than a hundred years ago. So I, I don't know what, what metric you might be using to determine when we had the greatest growth, but I'm kind of going by my general knowledge of history or generally general sense of the rate of innovation. We still have innovation today in like the computer industry especially, but I think notably that's one of the freer industries, the ones that's not regulated very much. Um, whereas I think in like the healthcare industry, which is much more regulated, there's been, uh, there's far more problems than in the computer industry where, you know, we've had tons of innovation uh, over the last few decades and that's thanks to freedom. So if we had every industry as free as the computer industry, I think we'd be doing much better.
0: So are you saying that you think there is more innovation in the 19, 19th century than today?
1: I would think so. I mean, I don't have, there's not like a, um, obvious yardstick measurement I can point to. I mean, maybe there have been economic historians who have who have done studies to quantify this, but I'm just going by my general sense of history. Um, that did seem like a very inventive age. Um, the rate of inventions that were being uh, produced and the rate of knowledge increase, uh, my sense is that was plausibly uh, the the period of greatest progress.
0: From my understanding of the research in science that today is most of when innovation happens, uh, it seems like innovation is tied to the education and reading level of the populace. More people who can read, more people who can write, uh, more innovation. And based on the current advances in science and technology and Nobel Prizes and et cetera, the further we go into the future, the more innovation there is. And the more people who are educated and can read by public education, the more innovation there is. It seems like innovation is almost directly correlated to the amount of public education funded by the government and how much of your populace can read.
1: Well, if you're concerned about literacy and education, I think public education is not a good example. I think public education has been a disaster. I used to be a tutor and I had kids who were in middle school. So these are kids who are like... Uh, 11, 12 years old, they still couldn't read. They couldn't even do basic arithmetic. I went through public education and I was bored most of the time. Um, so I think education is one of the areas where be, we would be light years ahead of where we are now if we had a system of competition and privatization. So uh, yeah, I wouldn't point to public education as a success.
0: Based on the studies I've read, if we compare countries with and without it, the countries that adopted public education skyrocketed in growth in pretty much every metric. As far as I know, I don't, I've never seen an example of a country who adopted a more private system of education grow as fast as one that adopted a public system of education. Um, mostly because people have like trends, things they enjoy, uh, they have a culture, and diverting from that culture is Strange and hard for people to do even if it's in their self-interest. and They don't recognize it So forcing people to go to public schools Has been one of the most successful human programs of educating humanity all across the world Whereas asking them to do it voluntarily seems to be significantly less successful
1: Yeah, I'm just gonna have to disagree Um, I think public education has been a disaster and I think it's widely recognized to be Seriously a flawed system to put it kindly. I mean, you have people graduating high school who can't identify basic places on a map. Um, and, you know, as, as I've said from my own experience, uh, I have reason to think it's it's been awful. Um, so uh, we might just have to disagree on that point and, you know, maybe uh, get into empirics of it an, another time.
0: Okay, sure. Yeah, I just wanted to mention like all the different studies uh, that have been done specifically on what happens when Education is implemented in developing world, developing countries, and how much of a massive impact it has. Um, but yeah, let, let's talk a little bit about egoism and selfishness. You said selfishness has a different definition for Ayn Rand as opposed to regular people. Regular definition? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, in the conventional sense, it's understood as doing something for yourself at the expense of others. And on her understanding of it, it just means being concerned with your own interests. It doesn't entail doing anything at the expense of others. Uh, and actually, she thinks it's self-destructive. It would not be in your self-interest. It would not be selfish to uh, be rude or to others or treat them like a jerk, violate their rights. I mean, if I act that way towards other people in the stereotypical sense of selfish, then that, I'm actually harming my own interests. That's not conducive to... Developing friendships with other people, developing romantic relationships, business relationships, if I'm a jerk to others, uh, I'm shooting myself in the foot in a way. I might get some short-run benefit, but in the long run, it's not good for me. So on her sense of selfishness, um, she believes in respecting rights and being long-range, being rational, not just acting on the whim of the moment for whatever you happen to feel like.
0: So mostly just self-interest, essentially.
1: Self-interest understood to mean acting in a principled, rational, long-range kind of way.
0: So why did she use the word selfishness and not something more um, neutral like self-interest?
1: That's a good question. I think part of it might have been to be provocative um, and really get people to focus on the issue she wanted them to focus on. I've actually thought a lot myself about um, whether this is the best word to use, whether um, there's some things she says about it. For instance, the dictionary definition of self-interest or of selfishness is concern with one's own interests, unquote. She actually says that in the introduction to her book, The Virtue of Selfishness. And I've looked in dictionaries to see if that's what's in there. And typically, that's not what you find. So I think there is um, one can reasonably Uh, question whether this is the right term to use for the idea she advocates but I think the idea she advocates is correct I think it is good to pursue what is best for yourself and that doesn't that does not mean sacrificing others uh, to yourself or sacrificing yourself to others Um, so I think one can quibble over the word but I think the idea is right
0: so there's a question by uh... Paul, he said, why can't we do both, strive for self-improvement and work for the community? So, for example, if I want to, uh, my goal, my selfish goal in this case is to help the community, then I can do both in this case by helping others and being altruistic and achieving my selfish goal. Or would that be contradictory to the system?
1: Uh, I don't think helping others is incompatible with self-interest or egoism or selfishness in Iron Man's sense. It's just that if you help others, it should be because somehow it's benefiting you as well. You shouldn't just help them simply because they need help, but you can do things like trade. Like if, you know, I I buy something from the store, I go to the grocery store and I buy food. Well, I'm helping them by giving them money, but they're also helping me by giving me food. So it's a win-win kind of interaction. It's a trade and it's fine to help others in that sense. But what she opposes is altruism in the sense of sacrificing yourself so you're giving up something without getting anything in return or with only getting something less value in return than what you gave away. That's what she's opposing. There's
0: no I mean, so, to do that. So the question is more like if I wanted to give my money to a charity or something and I say my goal or my selfish interest is to help as many people as possible. Um, would my giving my money to the charity still count as selfish or would that be contradictory to the model?
1: Uh, well, get, I think it depends on exactly what your motivation is but simply helping a charity is not uh is not necessarily an unselfish or altruistic thing to do i mean if it's a charity who has some cause that you believe in then it could be perfectly self-interested to give money to the charity you want to help their cause whatever it is but if you're giving money just because you think you have some duty to sacrifice to make yourself uh worse off for the sake of somebody else then it would be altruistic and wrong immoral in fact from the point of view of Ayn Rand's morality.
0: So what about cases like uh, vaccines? Um, Say I want to force everyone, mandated vaccines, for a disease that has a 90% death rate or something. If I force everyone to take these vaccines, 90% of people don't die. If I don't force people to take this vaccine, 90% of people will die. Um, is Is it still bad to do this, or is it a good thing for a government to do this?
1: I think the only role of government in the case of diseases and vaccines is to protect people from physical force against wielded against them by other people so if you want to take a risk in your own life of getting some illness whether it's covid or something else i think you should have a right to decide what's best for yourself and if you think a vaccine will protect you i think you should have a right to take that vaccine but no one should be able to force you to take a vaccine i mean you should be able to commit suicide if you want um, so I don't think the government should be in the business of protecting people from themselves. It should just stop people from uh, violating other people's rights by being, for example, like a uh, typhoid Mary, who's got some known disease, which is lethal to other people if they come in contact. I think the government would be within its uh, proper authority to quarantine someone like a typhoid Mary. But if it's not that sort of risk, then I don't think the government has the business um, i mean there's a place where you have to draw the line but um if it's just i i don't think it's 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 proper for the government to do something just to protect people from themselves
0: so another question from smack dab uh, if we did have something like the covid outbreak happen would the vaccine be available freely in your society like it was in ours
1: uh possibly freely but if so it would have to be done voluntarily so there might be a some foundation or company who just out of goodwill wants to put up a lot of money to finance uh, having vaccines uh, available to everyone free of charge. So you can have a charity, for instance, that makes this possible, but it shouldn't be free, free in the sense of the government is forcing some people, say through taxation, to fund the availability of the vaccine for everyone. That's not really free. It just means other people are paying for it.
0: Well, do you think that that's likely in your system that people would actually do this? It seems like if we make, I don't know, a hundred systems like ours, a hundred systems like yours, most of ours are going to have it for free, but only a small percentage of yours will have it for free for most people.
1: I don't know that that would be the case. I mean, I think in general, people are much more benevolent and much more wealthy in societies where you do respect their freedom. I mean, I'm going to be much more likely to give some of my money to charity if I don't have the government taking away half of Whatever it is, I have much to be charitable with uh, than I would in a society where I can keep all the money that I earn. So I think you're going to have more benevolence, more charity towards others, although I think it will be less necessary uh, to have charity in a, in a free society just because people will be wealthier to begin with.
0: What do you think the poverty rate would be in a society that, like, like the one you're describing?
1: Well, we need to distinguish between absolute poverty and relative poverty. There's always going to be relative poverty if that simply means some people have less money than others. Um, but I don't think that's a problem. Uh, what we want to do is solve absolute poverty, poverty you know, where you're like living in, like people in Homestance. sub-Saharan Africa uh, on a dollar a day or less than that. And we've already solved that problem through freedom. We know how to get rid of that. Um, So I think what we need to do is just leave people free. That will lead to prosperity. And then uh, poverty in the sense that uh, matters, absolute poverty, will take care of itself. And relative poverty is not a problem.
0: Well, I mean, like, so comparing our society today here in America... What is the rate of homelessness in your society versus our society? What is the rate of education and reading level in your society versus our society? How do we assess if we adopted your society? How would those things be different than they are today in our society?
1: I mean, I think everything would be much better. I don't think there would be any homelessness problem. I mean, there might be some homeless people, but it wouldn't be because they couldn't find homes. It might be because they're they're just lazy and they don't want to work but there's not gonna be any shortage of jobs any way they could support themselves if they wanted to. I mean, there, there might be a tiny, tiny fraction of people who are born with like Down syndrome or something and they won't ever be able to do anything to fully support themselves and they will always need some kind of supervision. But that's just a tiny, tiny fraction of people. Um, the vast majority of people would easily be able to support themselves and I think they would be much better educated. Um, for reasons I was – or we were discussing education more earlier. But in in pretty much every metric, I think things are going to be better in the sort of system I advocate.
0: Well, so like many of the concerns I would have is like if I was a company owner in your society, I could pay people the very – minimum to get the job done. So I could have sweatshops. I could have as many sweatshops as I wanted, pay people a dollar a day here in America. And that would be in my self-interest and it would be in their self-interest because they're getting paid more than zero. And so they have a net benefit of a dollar a day. And I could get away with this and this would lead to a large amount of significantly larger amount of poverty in the country. Because I would have a disproportionate proportion of the wealth since I'm going to be making large profits and the employees would be making very, very little. What's to stop that in your system?
1: Well, I don't think there should be anything to uh, stop people from engaging in voluntary transactions. So I think it should be left up to the, the free choice of an employer in a prospective employee. Uh, to decide what wages uh, someone is going to be hired for. Uh, and I think that's going to be most conducive to the highest standard of living for everybody long term. I think if you if you use coercion to interfere with that, I just think that makes everything worse uh, for everyone long run.
0: Well, so I, I, my uh, interpretation is like hunger is a kind of coercion. So let's say someone's child is dying of cancer, and I have enough money to pay for it, but I say that, in order to pay for your child cancer, you have to be my slave and do anything I say for the rest of your life. Um, they can voluntarily agree to this, this situation. But to me, this seems synonymous with coercion. They are being forced by some situation in nature uh, to make a decision they don't want to make. It, would, would that situation be moral in your system?
1: Uh, so, I want to talk about coercion because uh, you said hunger is coercive, or it could be it's coercion. So, I don't think nature can coerce people, only people can coerce people. So, if you're alone on an island, you're going to have to work to produce what you need to survive. Maybe you'll have to climb a tree and get some coconuts. So, but you're not being coerced. Coerced by nature. Coercion properly understood in the context of a discussion of political philosophy means some other human being is applying physical force against you. So just the fact that nature prevents you from, uh, or by your nature as a human being, you have needs that you need to satisfy, that doesn't mean you're being coerced. It's when someone puts a gun to your head or puts you in chains or whips you, that's when you're being coerced.
0: Well, let's go back to my example. So let's say a child is dying. Parent wants to save the child. I can do that. But my condition is, is you have to be my slave and do anything I say for the rest of your life. Is that a moral transaction in your system?
1: Well, I mean, saying someone has to be your slave, uh, that's, I mean, if that means that, uh, you know, they have to, for the rest of their lives, I mean, would that even be a life worth living? <laughs> um, I, I, Uh, possibly not Um, so I think I mean if you're in that situation and you need uh, cancer treatments and you can't afford it I think the thing to do is seek voluntary assistance Uh, so you know you could start go to your family go to your friends try to do an online fundraiser and ask people instead of putting a gun to people's heads and demanding that they uh, support you which is in effect what you do when you bring the government in it's saying you're forcibly required to support other people i think the proper thing to do is seek people's voluntary assistance
0: but but that's that's uh, like avoiding the question in a little bit so the question is more say you've done all of that you don't have enough money and the only person offering you the way to save your child's life is you have to be their slave
1: okay i mean i don't know how realistic that is but i can think it through it's, so, fr- it's fr- actually
0: very, very realistic. This happens all the time, all over the world.
1: That people say you have to be my slave if you want to, if you want me to help cure you of cancer. Uh,
0: it's a m- more general than that, but let's just try to just go with the analogy. Yes, this is a very, very, very literal example. But just just try to try to think it through and see: is this moral in your model? All
1: right. So maybe the easiest for me to think it through if I put myself in this situation. So if I'm the one with cancer and...
0: Your child. Your child has cancer.
1: Alright, my child has cancer. And then uh, you happen to be the only one with a cure?
0: Is that the idea? Yes. I, I, I'm the only one who's willing to help you. I have the, the a means to help you, money, whatever. Only one who's willing to help you, but only under the condition you are my slave for the rest of your life.
1: All right. So you're the only person on the face of the earth who's willing to help for some reason. Could it be Here's time or line. distance.
0: Could be any reason.
1: All right. And and you say that you're only going to help. You, the only person who can help, are only going to help if if uh, if my child agrees to be your slave
0: for the no, rest. of No. You, if you agree to be my slave, I will save oh. your child. Child's going to be fine.
1: Okay. I agree to be your slave for the rest of my life if you will save my child. Yep. Uh, hmm. Well, first, I, it is a weird situation. I got to say that. But uh, I'll try to see if I can think this through. I think part of why it's maybe it's why it's hard to think through is because it is so weird. Um, but uh, let me see what I can do with it. So um, if I'm, okay, I'm gonna be your slave for the rest of my life, if you help, um, I don't know that that can be enforced, which maybe that's an irrelevant issue, but I don't know that the government, that's something the government could enforce, like a terms of a contract that says someone is gonna be someone else's slave, um, I mean, I can try to think it through, like on the assumption that that is something—a sort of contract that a government could enforce.
0: Well, well the government wouldn't have to enforce it. I'm going to literally have you in chains. You're going to be—it's going to be enforced by me. So, the enforcement part isn't the issue here. It's more—is that a moral contract, a moral transaction? Uh,
1: I mean, I don't think it's—I I think it's—it's. It's, it's likely not moral, at least on your part. So we can ask you know, whether it's moral for you to make the offer, and then we can also ask whether it's moral for me to accept the offer. Are, are you asking about both, or, or one? Well, no, I'm
0: asking because on both cases, both people are having a voluntary transaction. I voluntarily choose to offer you the cure to cancer, and you voluntarily agree to the terms or the price, which is slavery. Both of those seem to be voluntary interactions. So under the system of objectivism, as you've described it, that seems like it would be a moral or acceptable transaction.
1: Well, just because something is voluntary doesn't mean it's moral. So I think being voluntary is a necessary, but not sufficient condition of being moral. I mean, there are many voluntary things I could do. I could overeat, I could get drunk, I could uh, get addicted to drugs all voluntarily, but that doesn't make it moral.
0: So, so, sorry, sorry to confuse the moral language. This is like if we're in a government who has laws or whatever Would this be an acceptable transaction or should we make this illegal my government? This is gonna be illegal
1: Okay, well if if it's uh, involving slavery and if slavery means coercion, then no, I don't think it should be legal But then I think maybe what you're asking about is something other than slavery because if it's really voluntary I wouldn't call it slavery because I think by definition Slavery is where you are coercing somebody.
0: You, you can call it so whatever can you'd like.
1: It, we could call it like a really strange... Indentured servitude?
0: Agreement. What? what? Indentured servitude.
1: Indentured servitude? Yeah, so it's a very long-term agreement. It uh, There's no like at-will thing that says you can terminate employment whenever you want. But the conditions are um, you have to work for... Uh, do what I tell you to do be my employee for the rest of your life Um, so but but we can't call it slavery because I would be agreeing to it voluntarily Um, I mean there are there are uh, I'm, I'm wondering whether that's the sort of contract that could actually be made I mean I think there are such things as unenforceable contracts and if this does run afoul of a legitimate sort of contract then maybe that just makes this a a moot question but i want to try to go with it as far as i can um i mean if we if we assume that it's a legitimate voluntary agreement to make uh what well, there's one one question is, would I do it? Another question is, is it moral for well, me? Well, suppose
0: you're a super loving parent and you want to save your child and you'll do anything to save your child. So somebody will do it.
1: I might. I mean, it's kind of like risking my life for a child. Like if my child is drowning, um, I might risk my life to save my child. And this is kind of like risking my life in a different sort of way to save my child. So... I might be willing to do that maybe in the course of serving my my life my my life sentence to you I would just kill myself pretty quickly if it looked like there was no prospects of uh, getting out of the situation Um, or I would try to find some way to get out of it maybe talk you out of it but anyways um, yeah I, I might at least initially agree to it and then I would have to think more later about you know what are my options? Do I kill myself? Well, okay. The
0: question isn't specifically what you would do. The question is: is under objectivism, is this a moral transact or a, a correct legal transaction, an appropriate transaction, something we would allow in the government? A fair trade. Is this a fair trade?
1: Uh, I'm not sure. I think maybe the answer is yes. Um there are people uh who might know better than i like scholars of the law uh um, p- people who specialize in legal philosophy or political philosophy who are also knowledgeable about objectivism who might argue that uh know this would be an illegitimate kind of arrangement both morally illegitimate and legally off the top of my own head i'm not sure so i think maybe but it's it's just not a case I, I'm sure about 100% off the top of my head, but I think it's a weird case
0: well, yeah, so so it's a literal case of actual indentured servitude and cancer is just one possible way hunger is another um, Housing is another protection from wind and rain and things there are thousands of ways you could die in the world and thousands tens of thousands of ways and There are tens of thousands of different ways to prevent that and they all require something And usually it's something people don't have like it's what the whole point of orphan orphan drugs Orphan drugs drugs that cost six hundred thousand dollars a year or whatever um, And so there are lots of parents who have to do lots of very questionable things to keep their children alive in this world and in our legal system in america that's coercion it would be called coercion it would be illegal to do that it's bad um and i think that that is the correct moral and political position to have on those kinds of topics is that they are a form of coercion
1: well i think these sorts of cases whether they're coercive or not and i'm i'm not sure they are coercive but whether they are or not i just think it's it's um I don't know how, how relevant these cases are because I, I don't think they would really be uh, an issue in the kind of society I envision. I think there would be plenty of benevolence. I think people would be much better able to take care of themselves or any sick, sick children they might have. Um, so, and I, I understand you you don't agree with that, but this, you know, it gets to just to the empirical facts about the matter um, that uh, we disagree on. But I think the philosophical uh, explanation of why there would be fewer of these sorts of situations in the kind of uh, society I envision is that my system leaves people's reason free. They're free to use their minds and produce wealth. Uh, reason are, is our basic means of survival. Uh, this is the principle of objectivism. It's our, our basic means of producing wealth. And the freer people are, the more wealth they are able to produce So the better off they are, the more prosperous they are, the less likely they are to be hit with something like cancer, which we haven't discovered a disease, uh, a a cure for. So I I just don't think that uh, these kinds of situations are going to be nearly as prevalent. And I think my my vision of society is the solution to these cases. They are the cure for cancer.
0: (laughs) So my interpretation is I think that in a freer society, we have a greater... Um, disproportionate number of wealthy and a greater disproportionate number of people in poverty. And so we have a greater freedom for a very few number of people and greater slavery and indigenous servitude for the vast majority of people. That seems to be what I see when I look at the historical evidence of trying to adopt something like a model like yours.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, we might uh, there's the issue of wealth inequality there, which I alluded to before when talking about relative poverty, I don't really think that's a problem. So, you know, someone is a billionaire and I get five years a year. um, That's you know, that's not a problem. He became rich because he benefited so many people by coming up with some awesome product that he sold to billions of people who are willingly giving their money to him. So, you know, it's it's a good thing when people become rich. It's it's often a sign that they've created some enormous value like the iPhone that I'm using right now to talk to you. So I think wealth inequality is kind of a bogus problem, uh, which a lot of people talk about today. But I think the real problem is not uh, wealth inequality, it's inequality before the law, where you have some people who, uh, you know, if you make under a certain amount, then you don't get taxed. If you make above a certain amount, you do get taxed. So you have property rights in one case, but not in the other. I think that's the kind of inequality um, we should be worried about. I think what we want is inequality of rights, not inequality of Wealth.
0: My concern is that the inequality of wealth leads to hunger, starvation, less health, and the inequality of health is really more of the bigger thing I'm concerned with. Like lower life expectancy, um, lower education, lower quality of life.
1: Right. Yeah, I think all that is made better when you have uh, uh, equality of rights where you're not violating people's rights with physical force, when everybody is free from coercion, and I think uh, that's what we see historically, places where, uh, you know, you have um, uh, more freedom, you have greater life expectancy. You know, there might be some, uh, you know, things at the margin which uh, make that difference, but in general, I think the the free you are, the better lives, the longer lives, the healthier lives um, you live. The more prosperous, the more things you can do, more opportunities you have better education better health yeah I think those go together freedom and prosperity coercion and well prosperity. if I
0: look if I look at the list of the freest countries in the world and the countries with the longest life expectancy those are not the same um, the longest yeah, I mean, life expectancy
1: exactly exactly the same but roughly like um, the more I mean it I think it's more useful to look at the extremes i don't know like what what the extremes would be um, but i mean it'd be weird if the places where there was the most coercion and slavery and robbing and mugging and raping and murdering that's certainly not good for life longevity um where you have the most of those like a state of anarchy maybe uh that that's, that's going to be the worst to life Worst for life
0: Sure, but I mean, like the countries with the longest life expectancy are usually the ones with the most uh, progressive healthcare systems. Um, the Sweden, Norway, those kinds of areas. And then some of them have high levels of freedom, like Luxembourg has a high level of freedom, but they don't have the same level of life expectancy as the ones who have massive healthcare systems that go to everybody for free.
1: Yeah. So I, I mean, I think the time scale is, is, is relevant here. Um, So if you followed Sweden or these other Scandinavian countries, I don't know what their life expenses is. Maybe is it a few years longer than the US? I don't know. Maybe it is. But in the long run, follow them for centuries. um, I think what you're going to find is it trends in the direction that the freer the country is, the better it does. Um, And the more corrosion, the worse it does. So you can have an unstable uh, mixture for a while, but I don't think it's going to last. But, you know, Rome didn't fall in a day. Um, It takes a while for things to play out sometimes. But the, the, the principle is that the mind is the source of wealth. It's our means of survival. And when you stifle, when you negate and paralyze people's minds by using coercion, you stifle people's ability to produce wealth, to discover cures to cancers, to create new medicines, and that you know, that, that will have effects on people's longevity. But it, it's not yeah. going to happen overnight. you got to watch it for a long time
0: sometimes. Been watching since, like, the origin of each of the countries. It seems like the ones that have the most um, healthcare systems are the longest. Like, Italy and Spain are in the top ten. And they have tons of government taxation of all kinds.
1: So what's the logical uh, end of your prescription. If the idea is that coercion is good for people's well-being, should, I mean, should we just go total slavery, totalitarianism, or, or what?
0: No, it's good in some cases. There are some cases where it's a good idea to force people to do things they don't like, and it's better for society for some people to be forced to do things they don't like in some cases.
1: Okay. I want to address that my, my phone battery is getting low. Uh, could I uh, run into the other room and get my charger for, for a second?
0: Um, we're, we've been going for about an hour, so we can wrap up right now anyway.
1: Okay. Um, all right. Well, I have a nice, at least enough battery to wrap up, I guess. So um, So your last point was – sorry, could you repeat that?
0: Yeah, sometimes coercion is good for some things. We can force people to do things they don't like, and that produces a better society in some cases.
1: Yeah, I don't agree with that. Um, and I, I think history bears that out. I think the, the uh, countries that have been freer, that have abolished coercion, have done better. I think that's the moral thing to do, is not to force people to leave them free. And I think it's both practical and moral. I don't think there's a dichotomy between what's practical and then what's moral. I, those go together. Uh, so yeah, I'll just, I'll leave it at that for now.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. It was a great conversation. Do you want to give links or references where people can find more of your work if they are interested?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, so again, thanks for having me on here. I really appreciate the opportunity. And if anyone else wants to follow my work, you can find me on YouTube. Uh, I'm at youtube.com slash Dan Norton one. And you can also follow me on Twitter at Dan Norton one, one, one.
0: Awesome. Thanks again for coming on. really appreciate it. And I hope you have a nice day.
1: All right. You too. Bye-bye.